This morning, if you would uh, open your Bible with me to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, we're going to conclude uh, our study of chapter 13, looking at uh, verses uh, 31 through 38. We will first uh, pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We will then uh, read the passage and then um, divide the passage, making some observations and applications as we go. Uh, let us first pray. Well, Holy Spirit of God, we ask for you to illuminate the scriptures to our minds that we might understand them. Reveal your heart to us, Father, through this passage this morning. We ask for your enabling grace that we will, our, our will would be transformed such that we would obey the instructions that we will hear from your word, Father. I pray for the faithful church that will gather this morning in McMinnville at Baker Creek. I pray that their time would be blessed under your word. I pray that we would all grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning. Amen. Amen. If you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glory him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word. You may be seated. We saw from uh, last week's passage that the people of God are formed by the word of God, right? When we looked at last week's passage in that part, our, our emphasis was to understand that the people of God are formed by the word of God and that the word of God is surety. It's a, it's a surety for those that have been redeemed. The words of Christ can be trusted to come to pass. And salvation, then, is according to the authority of Scripture. The Reformers had five solas, these five onlys that they ascribe to, that, that, that the church in our day should recover and remember, is that our lives, we are formed by the word of God, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is what we need for faith and practice. It is the authority, not the authority of the world, not the authority of the church, the authority of any other uh, Christian writers that we like. Um, it is sola scriptura. It is the word of God alone as what we need for faith 
and practice, right? So it is the word of God alone. It is by grace alone that you have been saved, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, right? So these solas, you might see them on these signs or see them out there. This is what they represent, is that salvation is all of God. That's, that's the gist. When we get to the end of it, salvation is all of God, and it is all to His glory and uh, His praise. And so from today's passage, since I will argue from today's passage um, that salvation belongs to God, then I will argue this, that the glory belongs to God alone. Further, I will argue that the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is particular for whom the atonement applies. We will see that it is in Christ alone that sin is atoned for. We will discover that for those whose sin has been paid, a new life is not just possible. A new life is not just made possible by the atoning death of Jesus Christ, but in fact, a new life is commanded by the one who paid for it. That is, the one who paid for your life commands us to live a new life. He didn't just make it possible for us to live a new life. He, he also enables us to live a new life, but he commands it that this new life must be lived. So, and finally, we will discover that it is the faithfulness of Christ himself in which we walk as a Christian and that our ongoing need for our own faithfulness and our own obedience is that it comes through God's ongoing grace alone for us. And then, if you come to the end of yourself in that idea, what will you do? Pray. You will pray, and you will pray a lot. If the ongoing walk of Christ is dependent upon God's grace, meaning that you don't have it in you, and you're dependent upon God's grace, you will pray. So let us look at verses 31 and 32 uh, more closely here. When he had gone out, this is when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So, you may remember from our earlier study of John chapter 11 that for Jesus Christ, the overriding principle of his life is the glory of the Father. To do God's will and to do God's work on earth in such a way as to give all the glory to God the Father. And God's glory or glorification or glorified is mentioned five times here in just these two verses. So we must understand that this is important, right? If it's important to be repeated, it's important, right? Wants us to understand something about the glory of God and the, and the ongoing glory of God and the coming glory of God. Now, so we see in this passage that the departure of the betrayer signals to Jesus that the time has come for him to be glorified and that the time is coming when the Father will be glorified in him and it's about to transpire, it's about to come. The ones, though, that Jesus was sent to save, he says, those who I came to receive, they have received me, they are with me, and so now that this Judas has departed, now is the time 
for the Father to be glorified. Because he's speaking about going to the cross, right? Jesus is speaking about going to the cross for sinners. He didn't come to save Judas. He came to save the eleven. But now that the betrayer is gone, the ones whom I came to save, now this is the time that God will be glorified in my death for these chosen sinners, these people I have chosen to save. Now there are layers and layers of glory in this text. And they use two different Greek words are used to convey these layers of glory and what glorified means. First, glory can be translated to mean the external brilliance and the revelation of God or an illumination. I'm going to repeat that. Glory can be translated to mean the external brilliance of the revelation of God or illumination. Secondly, an experienced and proven revelation of God. It can mean an experienced and proven revelation of God. And thirdly, uh, in the Greek present tense, the word doxa is used, meaning to reveal, hold, and ascribe right opinions as to the nature and character of God. It's where we get our term orthodox, right doctrine. Same word, glory, right? That, that, that this is a revealing of how we ascribe right opinions to the nature and character of God. Upon the departure of Judas, Jesus is saying, now is the time for Son of Man to reveal, that is to glorify God. But what is He doing? What is He revealing about the nature and character of God? What is going to be revealed on the cross is the justice of God. Now that the betrayer is gone, I want, to, I want you to know that you will be able then, you will understand and ascribe a right opinion about the justice of God. That a death must be paid for sin. There is justice in God and there's right justice. And he want, when he says God is soon to be glorified, you will have an understanding of ascribing the right opinion about the glory of God, about the justice of God, about something of God's character. As he goes to the cross, as he's going to go to the cross in this glory of God, he's revealing the justice of God. He's also at the same time revealing the mercy of God. He's revealing the love of God. He's revealing the sovereign grace of God. He's, he's revealing that God is the provision. He's also revealing that this is the very power of God is going to be on display. The power of God to save sinners is going to be on display soon. This is the glory of God. I want you to ascribe right opinions about God. This is, that what it, that's what it means to glorify God, is to ascribe a right opinion. And so some will say, well, doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. The right opinion about God matters. What is His nature? What is His character? Who is he? What has he done? What has he accomplished? Right? It's a, it's a right opinion about God. So that's why I think it's great that this term glory, doxa, right, a right opinion about who God is and about his character. A final note on this section is that the death of Jesus didn't secure salvation for the unrepentant Judas. The death Jesus died was particular and it was distinct. 
And it was distinct for those whom he chose. You see, if it wasn't distinct for those whom he chose, did he really save you? You know what I'm saying? If it was just generally thrown out there, that this death accomplished an opportunity for sinners to be saved, it's just an opportunity. But if Jesus said, I died for Jesse Wildman, and I actually accomplished his salvation, it actually came to be that my death was a substitute for his sin before God the Father, he then is truly, truly saved. Right? Amen? Truly, truly saved. The death of Jesus was particular and it was distinct for those whom he chose. Jesus Christ came to the world to do what? To purchase salvation. He purchased it. He bought it. It's paid for. It is secure. He did what we couldn't do. And see, when, when Judas gets out of the way, Jesus says, now is the time for God to be glorified and, the, and God to be glorified in me. Now is the time for you to ascribe a right opinion about God's justice, about God's mercy. Also at the cross, you see the wrath of God, don't you? Against sin. It's, it, it's both sides of the same coin. It's happening at the same time. The wrath of God is poured out against sin and the love of God is poured out for sinners. At the same time, I want you to ascribe right opinions about God. This is God will be glorified soon. Glory is coming. And Jesus Christ came in the world to purchase salvation for sinners, for the sheep of his fold, for the church. Some from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, all of whom Christ died are saved, but not just potentially, specifically. I want us to get that. So I would ask us this morning question number one, and I'm going to ask this question three times, so I'll, just, I'll tell you that right now. That I call it question number one, but I'm going to ask the same question three times at three different places. And that's this. How do you know that you are among the elect? How do you know that you are among the ones for whom Christ died? Well, I will tell you this. That your heart, your mind, and your will have been illuminated to the revelation of the brilliance of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his death on a cross. Your mind, your will, and your heart have been illuminated to the revelation of the brilliance of God in salvation. From the heart you ascribe honor and praise to God. Your mind holds to right thoughts concerning the nature and the attributes of God. You understand that salvation is a work of God alone without any assistance from you. Therefore, the glory and the praise belong to God alone. Your mind is continually working to submit your will to sound doctrine as revealed in His Word, to will and do of His good pleasure. That becomes the summary of our life on earth. The glory of God is the overriding principle in your life as it was the overriding principle in Jesus Christ who died for you. If that is true of you, you are of the elect of God. How can you know? That's one. Now let's look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Here, Jesus 
ultimately is saying something. A life must be given for sin. The decree of God in the garden, and when He says, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We have said uh, last week that what the Word of God says will surely come to pass. It will surely come to pass. So the decree in the garden to Adam and then therefore all of his offspring was, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This will come to pass. A life must be given for disobedience to holy God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without a life given, there is no redemption. So I ask, what life could be sufficient to redeem the life of a sinner like me? The sinner has nothing in them but sin, so that life surely would not be sufficient, would it? Micah 6 7 says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand uh, of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Of course, that's posed as a question, right? The answer is no. The answer is no. According to the law of God, only a pure, spotless lamb could cover sin. But covering sin just means that there's still sin. It's covered. And that means that sin remains. Only the lamb of God could take away sin. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember that as Jesus enters in, right? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not behold the Lamb of God who will come and cover it for you. Behold the Lamb of God who comes and takes away sin. Only Christ Jesus could offer a life sufficient to take away sin, could blot out the transgressions of sinful men and women, and once and for all, a complete sacrifice is only possible in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, what I am about to do for the glory of the Father is mine alone to do. You can't come. You can't follow me. Your life would not be sufficient. You can't go where I'm going. You can't do what I'm doing. You can't atone for your own sin. Where I'm going, which is what he told the Jews, right? He's saying, I'm reminding you what I reminded the Jews. Now, the Jews, he was telling them, you are not going to be a part of this kingdom that you, have, you, are, you are not part of this kingdom and you cannot go where I'm going. And he's telling them the same thing, but he's saying it in a much more pointed way is that only I can atone for sin. Only I, only my death. You can't go where I'm going. Your life would not be sufficient. The fruit of your body would not be sufficient for the sin of your soul. It is only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is... What I'm about to do is to the glory of the Father, and it is mine alone to do, Jesus says. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm soon going to complete the justice of God through the death on a cross. So now, let us look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, Jesus says, because I go to give my life for your sin, I give you eternal life. But what does it mean? 
that God gives us eternal life. It's a trade-off, isn't it? It's a trade for one standard for another. It's a trade of a temporal life and its standards for a life eternal and its standards. The standards have changed. The standard is much greater for eternal life than it is for the temporal life. The old will pass away. Behold, the new has come. The standard was once the letter of the law. But now Jesus says, by my death, I have raised it. I have raised the standard to the spirit that the law intended. I have raised it to the spirit that the law intended. We should consider Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the law says do not commit murder. The Spirit says angry insults are liable of the hell of fire. It's raising the standard, isn't it? It's raising it from the temporal law to the eternal law of God from the Spirit. The law says do not commit adultery. The Spirit says lust from the heart can send the whole person into hell. The teaching of old said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies. The Spirit says, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. The new life Jesus is calling us to, the new life He's calling them to, the new life He has called us to, is a higher life. Jesus says, I have displayed sacrificial service and love to you. Imitate my love for you in genuine, genuine loving sacrificial relationships with one another. As he displayed when he washed their feet, take the low position for the sake of your neighbors and even your enemies. I've raised the standard. Outdo one another in doing good. This is the new life that he has called us to. This is the life that is available to you, brothers, he would say to his disciples. This is the new life, new love, new affections are available to you in the Spirit because I go to redeem you from the life of sin, because I go to pay for the temporal life and give you life eternal. And he says, this is the new life. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Boy, if you could boil down Christianity to, to like a, a sentence for how we're supposed to live with each other, wouldn't these two things really just sum it up? Love one another as Christ loved you. So easy to say, isn't it? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrifice, a fragrant offering to God. Man, I'll tell you what, I would, be, I, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you how convicted I have been all week about thinking about my life and my walk with people and my relationships with people and going, is that a fragrance that the Lord would be pleased with? Words, actions, is that a fragrance that blesses God? So, question two, same as question one. How do you know you're among the elect? Well, the things you once held dear, you count them all as loss compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. You have been born again to new affections. I was talking with a brother this morning and he was saying, do I have the right to judge whether or not this person is actually saved or not? And I said, 
Yeah, you do, in one sense. In one sense that it's this. Does that person have new affections? Do they have a new love? Or do they love the things they loved before? Have they abandoned what they once loved to love Jesus? Or do they still love the world and all the things of it? Right? Being given a new affection, new praise on your heart, glorying in the Father, glorying in what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's, that's your new affection, your new aim. You've been born again to new affections. You've, you've been given a new aim, which is the glory of God and the glory of Christ. You have new responses to old issues. Do you have new responses to old issues? Instead of anger and bitterness, have you been given joy, love, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control? The things that Jesus loves, do you love? Those are new affections. Jesus loved the church. Jesus loved the church. This, this, this little group of people, as we are gathered here, Jesus loved you. He loved you so much that He died for you. That He went to a cross and, and He paid for your sin. He did that which you could not do. But He did that for the person sitting next to you. Do you love what Jesus loved? Do you love the person sitting next to you in a sacrificial loving way as Christ has loved you? See, if you are among those that God has chosen, you love what Jesus loves. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the sheep. Jesus loves the members in the church. So when he says, here, love one another as I have loved you, if you want to know that you are among the elect of God, that you are chosen of God and chosen out of the world, you love what Jesus loves. Jesus loves and praises the glory of the Father, doesn't He? And Jesus loves the church that He died for. So I would ask us, do we love the church? Do we love the church that Christ died for? I hope we do. And I hope that if we say, i got some pieces in my heart where I know I haven't been very loving to the church that Christ died for, God, empower me. Give me grace and mercy and forgiveness and transform me that I might love how you loved, that I might love the church that you love, that I might have the same affections that you have, Lord. The church that he died for, have you been made willing to die for it too? That's really even harder. But that's real love, isn't it? Because he says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved the church and he died for it. Would you be willing to die for the church? Die for your brother across the hall. Die to your own desires and affections and, the, and your your your. What do you call it? The, just the things that you like enjoy, your predispositions. Will you die to those? Will you die to your preferences? There's one. That's the big one. Will you die to your preferences because you love your brother or your sister? It's tough. We need grace, don't we? We need help in that area.
Another thing that you can know that you are among the elect of God is His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And guess what becomes your song? I hope this is your song. This is my song. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. That is our song. Amazed at God's grace and mercy upon us. We have a new song in our heart. Now, let us look at 36 through 38. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter was strong on desire, wasn't he? Strong on desire. I will lay my life down for you. But weak in ability. Strong in desire, weak in ability. The thing he desired to do in his mind was at war with his ability to carry it out in the flesh. Paul writes to the Peter in every one of us sitting here in Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I don't want, that is what I keep doing. Now if, you do, uh, now if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Peter says, why can I not go with you? I have a desire to lay down my life for you. My faith is strong, Jesus, he might be saying here. Jesus tells Peter basically something like this. You better check yourself, Pete. You better check yourself because where I'm going or what I'm about to do, you do not have the ability to do. You might be willing. You might have a desire to do this. You might have a desire to do the right thing. You might have a desire to remain faithful, but your faith will prove fickle in your own strength. If you try to do this in your own power, your faith will prove to be fickle. You will desire to be with me in your mind, but your flesh is weak. To make it to the end, and one day, you will make it to the end. And that one day, you will die for me. But to get where you're going, you need something, Pete. You need the power of God's continued grace. To get where you want to go, and you're going to go there. I'm going to take you there. You're going to get there. But you're going to need some help, Pete. You're going to need to be dependent upon God's grace. You're going to be dependent upon Him for your faith to continue all the way to the end. It is God who brought you to faith in me by grace as a free gift, Peter, he might be saying. It is God's grace that brought you to faith in me. And it is grace that will preserve you all the way to the end. How do you know? Question number three, same as two, same as one. How do you know that you then are among the elect? 
You understand this. You understand that by grace I have been saved and by grace I am being saved. You were once independent of God. You were living in the world without regard to His will or without regard to His glory. But now you are dependent upon grace daily to take up your cross and to follow Him. You know that even if you do obey and you do it well today, it is because God graciously gifted you for this day to be able to take up your cross. Tomorrow, you'll still have to go on your knees before the Father and pray. God, I need grace sufficient for this moment, for this day, for this hour. I need your grace to enable me to do that which I cannot do in myself. I need the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, God, to do that which pleases you. I'm going to need some help. So now you've become dependent upon God's grace to daily take up your cross and to daily follow Him. You've been given new affections and yet you're continually dependent upon that grace of God and the Holy Spirit to carry it out, to carry out His will in your flesh. The elect of God are a people who are dependent upon the grace of God to do, to will and to do of His good pleasure. I would say this, that the elect of God pray. How do you know? You're among the elect of God. You are dependent upon God and you pray. Prayer is where you go. A prayerful Christian is an active participant in the grace of God. Do you desire to tap into the grace of God needed to bring you all the way to your expected end? Do you desire to live a life of love and obedience? I would ask us this. If that is your desire, as Pete here says, I'm going to lay down my life for you, Jesus. I would ask you, if you have the same kind of desire as Peter did, I'm going to ask you this. What does your prayer life look like? If you want to do what it is that Peter is claiming in his desire to do, if that has become your desire... If you're, not a, if you're not on your knees, it's not happening. If you're not on your knees, it is not happening. I, I am bold enough to say that you cannot make this declaration of your desire to follow and serve God and to love His people and not be a person who's on their face daily in prayer. You can't do it. Prayer is the answer for us. And I would say, do you have this desire? Well, then how is your prayer life? Or is prayer life an add-on thing? Is it a thing you do because you ought to? Uh, if you realize that your very life depends upon God's continued grace, you will be a person of prayer. And you are going to understand that you will never get there. And if you understand that, if you and I understand that, that you'll never get there unless you pray. You'll never get to where God wants to take you unless you are a person of prayer. If that's your understanding... I believe that you are the elect of God. You're those whom God has chosen. You're dependent. Not me, but you. Think about that. If, you're, if you know, if you know 100% that that which God has called you to do, the only way you're going to get there is if you fall on your face in dependent prayer. When God accomplishes all those things through you that you prayed, who would be glorified. Him. And not you. Right? So it, it ends as it begins. 
This dependence in prayer, this dependence upon God's grace and mercy, when it actually uh, comes to fruition in our lives, when it's actually fleshed out in our lives, it is Him who gets the glory. Well, let us pray and take a moment to just reflect uh, silently first uh, upon what God has spoken to us in His Word and how He's calling us to respond to it. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, his atoning death for us. We want to give glory and honor to you, Lord. Help us to be those who are dependent upon you for prayer. In prayer, dependent upon you, dependent upon your grace. Lord, show us the new affections of our heart and our life and enable us to live according to the new life that you have purchased for us. I know that you have raised the bar for us, Lord, and we can't reach that bar on our own. So, Lord, we need your grace, we need your mercy, we need your help, we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as we move forward in this. I ask, Lord, that you would unite the church in this mission to love one another as Christ loved us. The world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ if we have love for one another, the kind of love that dies to our preferences, the kind of love that seeks my neighbor's exaltation and not my own, seeks their betterment, even if it means my demise. Lord, help us in that. It is impossible in our own strength to do. And we are dependent upon you to do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.